Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Jingiwala, welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival. My name is Michaela Saunders. I'm a Korean Lebanese writer who belongs to the Tweed Guru community. I'm also the editor of This All Come Back Now, an anthology of First Nations speculative fiction. I'm delighted to have you all here for a discussion of our anthology with Evelyn Araluen, Marianna Salem and Jack Lattimore. We're gathered here today on Gadigal Nura, which has always belonged to the Dara Giora, and it always will. Boogle Bear to the Sydney Koori community, especially to any elders here, um, and those who are still here, and even those who aren't, but whose work lives on through their legacies. I have utmost respect for all the work they've done for their country, community, and culture, despite the ongoing undermining of their sovereignty, which has never been ceded and never will be. Jingari to any other blackfellas here today, Bulgawan, I'm grateful to be here. Now, about this panel and my guests. This All Come Back Now is the first ever anthology of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander speculative fiction, a book written, curated, edited and designed by blackfellas, for blackfellas and about blackfellas. This All Come Back Now expands and subverts the expectations of the speculative fiction genre to centre First Nations communities, cultures and our creativity. And it features many genres of spec fic, such as ghost stories, bush horror stories, urban fantasy, science fiction, and many more imaginative and unsettling genres. I'm the editor of this beautiful book, and I conceived of it as a love letter to kin and country, to memory and to future thinking. Joining me are Mariana, Jack and Evelyn, who are three of 21 brilliant contributors to this all come back now, to discuss their stories in the anthology and their thoughts on the spec fic genre. Mariana Salem is a Wanarua and Lebanese-Australian writer, teacher, author, critic and podcaster. They have written for Junkie, Kill Your Darlings, The Big Issue, and they also co-host a podcast called Gay V Club, where they discuss popular queer arts and media. Jack Lattimore is a black journalist and writer. He's the Indigenous Affairs Journalist at The Age and previously the Managing Editor of NITV Digital. He's a Biripai Dungari man currently based on Boomerang Country in Nam. <laughs> Evelyn Araluen is a poet, researcher and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. Her widely published criticism, fiction and poetry have been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship and a Neil, Neil Sydney Literary Travel Fund grant, grant fund. But born and raised on Dara country, she's a descendant of the Bundjalung Nation. Evelyn's debut collection, Drop Bear, won the 2022 Stella Prize. <laughs> So I want to start by talking about your stories in the anthology. So some of the stories in the anthology are set in further off futures in worlds that are currently unrecognisable, but they might not be far, too far-fetched, give or take a few things. One such science fiction story is Mariana's When From, a satirical corporate dystopia from an Aboriginal perspective. Salem has extrapolated on the current pandemic and Hollywood's proclivity for filming in Australia and added some time travel and mixed in a strong dose of Aboriginal cynicism for good measure. (laughs) 
Mariana, would you mind telling us about the world of When From and the premise of the story and what you're inspired by in writing it? Um, yeah. I wouldn't mind at all. Works <laughs> <laughs> quite well for your plans. Yeah, well, well. But guess why I'm here. Um, uh, yeah, When From is... Um, it's, it's about time travel because I love time travel. I have since I was a little kid. Um, and... It's about movies because I also just love movies. And one thing that I write a lot about um, as a culture writer is you know, representation in movies. And I've always had this kind of weird idea of like, if time travel became something that everyone could use, how would it be used in Hollywood to, to make movies? And one of the weird ideas I had was, what if instead of you know, getting people to dress up in stupid period drama costumes, we went back in time and just filmed people as they were. Um, and in when from uh, this is what Ardelia, who is the main character, she is she has been uh, picked for an internship program at a studio that is um, in so-called Australia, and she has been her job will be to collect footage from a certain period of time that they want to make a movie about. And it's about why she's picked. She's picked because she is Aboriginal and they want footage of Aboriginal people. Um, and it's cynical because the person, the reason she's been picked is literally just because she's Aboriginal. It's not because she's qualified, like, but even though she is, it's because she's Aboriginal and because the people who are making the films, they just assume like, oh, well, that's enough. And that's like reflective of a lot of attitudes I see, like not even just affecting how Aboriginal people are written on, on screen, but lots of, I'm, I mean, I'm Arab as well. And I think about how like POC are like treated very interchangeably on screen. Um, and even, and a lot of the time these studios will just pat themselves on the back for the bare minimum of just, well, they're there, like what more do you want? And not think about why they're there or what it means that they're there. So this story is sort of, about all those different things. Um, as you said, it's also about like how a lot of movies are filmed here, and I'm always very conscious of how so many movies are filmed here, but they very rarely acknowledge even the traditional lands. I mean, it was a huge deal when Taika Waititi did a whole welcome to country and acknowledgement of country on his set, and no other filmmaker, as far as I'm aware, does that, and I think only he, he does that because he is Indigenous himself and understands the significance of it. So. Yeah, it's just about all that stuff. and It's so good. And, and, and you talk about representation and one of the... Another person who's chosen with Ardelia isn't actually Aboriginal, but why is he chosen? He's chosen um, because he's South Asian and that's just a little weird joke because there's that... There's, it's a bit of dark humour because there's that old debunked study that... Um, that came out quite a few years ago. It's been debunked heaps of times since it came out, but it basically said that Aboriginal people like are actually just South Asians who, you know, migrated when we were all Pangaea or whatever. I love Pangaea, my girl. No hate Pangaea. Moo <laughs> hates Pangaea. It's not her fault. No, it's not her fault. <laughs> no, I love that because yeah, it, it it speaks to the fact that, you know, I guess people push for representation and these corporations, they think any representation is yes. doing the Lord's work and it's, and, it's and often the sort of fails. 
Yeah, exactly. And the, and the joke is that, like, he's just there because they've gone, well, just in case they actually are, like, South Asians when we send them back in time, like, at least we've got one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I, I was presuming because they think he looks more Aboriginal. Yeah. And it's that, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Because it's also commentating on the way, like, you know, oh, you look a certain yes. way and that's why we want you. And, like, they even say to Ardelia, like, oh, you're not as dark as we wanted, but that's fine. Like, sure, we'll deal with it, I guess. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I love, I love that you've um, really thought deeply about all these things and put them in this really entertaining short story. Thank you. Um, so Jack's story, Old Uncle Sir, is arranged on the skeleton of Hamlet, but it's set in a post-apocalyptic feudal wasteland. It's always incredible, but sometimes very uncomfortable. Uh, the narrator's lyrical voice is a fresh mix of gritty, gross, and playful. He invokes a rich and violent world as he con contemplates his place within his messed up family, and he wonders whether he might someday found his own trash kingdom. Jack, could you please take us into the world of Old Uncle Sir and a bit of context about what was happening in your life when you wrote it? Sure. Um... So it is kind of uh, an accumulation mm, uh, yes. um, <laughs> of a number of things. So around the time I wrote it, which was 1994, 93, 94. Mm, um, long time ago. Yeah, I was like a young fella. Um, <clears throat> it was a while back. As opposed to... Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'd moved away from uh, Burupai country up to live with um, extended family up in Fingal, Punningba, mm. um, which is around Tweed Heads. My and community. Kind of, yeah, yeah. My people. Um, and Fingal had, I was living in Letitia Road. Uh, Fingal had just repelled uh, a resort uh, project or proposal that was going to develop the whole sort of uh, spit and peninsula bit there. They wanted to turn it into a rich man's playground. Yeah, And yeah. the community fought <clears> back. It's a beautiful yes. spot if anyone's not been there. But there's lots of significant and sacred um, sites and cultural areas there. Um, but there was also, when I arrived, there was still all the camp uh, sort of stuff that, you know, from the protest camp, caravans, um, yeah, just lots of debris and stuff. And that was kind of between Letitia Road and the beach along this spit bit. So I was kind of just kicking around there, smoking drugs. Um, you know, wasn't much to do. I was, I was going to Kingscliff High School, but, you know, only when I kind of really wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of a little bit of that. And then I went into, was fortunate enough to get into uni uh, up on Griff, up at Gold Coast. So I was living actually in the middle of surface and going, and so there was all of that element as well, which was really, you know, I think it's fair to say it's pretty a trashy. City. Yeah, and it was, you know, there was lots of high rises and stuff, but um, there was an element to it that was really, you know, odd for me, coming from the country. Um, so there was that, and then, you know, in uni as an undergraduate, we were learning about all of the things that you do as a humanities undergraduate. Mm. Um, my head was full of, you know, media perspectives and politics and all this mm. sort of stuff. So I just kind of crashed that all together. Um, there was one character, uh, we're kind of running amok a lot around that period. So kind of you know, from across, uh, what was it, 90, 92, 93, 94, um, leading from the Gold Coast down to Pottsville, going out the back, out the back of Mwoolumbar, 
um, with all the feral kids and all that sort of stuff. So there was one guy, we had a car that we drive down from the Gold Coast sort of area, and he uh, left a blanket and an electric shaver in the car and it ended up back at my place um, and was just there for ages. And it was like a crocheted blanket. It was nothing special really about it to look at it. Um, but anyway, Jay uh, traveled from the back of Moolaburra, wherever he was, right up along you know, into the Gold Coast expressly to get this blanket and his electric shaver. And it just seemed odd to me. He was a musician, drummer. He was really out there. Um, he had some mental sort of issues. Mm. Uh, and he came and collected this blanket. It was a big deal to him. Mm. So um, very shortly after that, he got in a bit of trouble and he ended up going to jail um, for something particularly violent. Um, and yeah, that sort of just stuck in my head. And then for uni, I had to write something and just everything smashed together yeah. and pushed out yeah, this yeah. thing that was kind of influenced by all of that and hip-hop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are, so what, are, what is your story? I can't say what's your story about. Can you tell us about the world that your story takes place in? What's, what's uh, happening It's kind there? of post-apocalyptic, but... And we kind of discussed this the other day. It's, it's absolutely set in a reality, but mm. it's an iteration um, of the here and now and always um, that you know, resonates with all of the same sorts of issues and structures and formulas and patterns um, as colonial you know, Australia does. Mm. It's just you know, in an, a different slip or channel of yes. that. Um, and I was actually thinking today, because we were staying near the harbour there, uh, there's a book called Taronga by yes. Victor Kelleher. And I remember reading that as a kid, and it was kind of like post-apocalyptic as well. So I think that was still in my head at the time as well. And, um, and Mad Max, of course. You know, that was one of the first movies that I'd ever seen on the big screen was Mad Max 2. Yeah. So I was all you know, interested in, in that sort of stuff, and, and particularly how... No, black politics was working through that. Mm. Um, I was teaching uh, at a homework program at the Minyabul Museum mm. and there was lots of kids, um, you know, going through, you know, the usual stuff that you hear and see. Um, so that was kind of, you know, it was starting to occur to me that there were some issues that needed addressing, you know. Yes. Before that, I was interested in black politics, but, you yeah. know, I never really took it on board, but that was kind of around the same period. It's like, all right... Have it. a crack at this. Thank you. I love hearing you talk about your wayward youth in Tweed because it just sounds like <laughs> mine. <laughs> exactly like mine. Um, okay. So, Evelyn, Evelyn's moving a mythic story, Muyam, a transgression, is set in between worlds. This haunting story is narrated by a young spectral, spectral protagonist in Araluan's unique and powerful prose. This is Aboriginal Gothic, where the sadness is born from intimate knowledge of place and people and what has been done to both, not horror arising from the land itself as a mysterious entity, as with the Western Gothic. Evelyn, can you please tell us a bit about your story, what it's about, and anything else you think is important for readers to know? Yeah, of course I can. Um, so, Moyama Transgression was written... Um, sort of stylistically at a period of my early writing development. Like I wrote it, I wrote it a couple of years ago yeah. where I was like the mark of poetry had just absolutely imposed itself on, on any prose that I wrote. Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, it's written in a way that um, I'd never be able to sustain it any longer than a short, than just a short story. Mm. Um, and sort of conceptually and culturally, it's really trying to think about the way in which um, uh, I was trying to negotiate um, different different sort of cultural positions and knowings and anxieties that arise from the way that we think about ourselves in place, whether we're being, whether we're actually displaced from that, you know, being on different country. Mm. Um, but the kind of, the, the sort of the spiritual futures um, that arise from that, um, you know, like I'm, I'm very careful with how I talk about this story because it's one that I wrote with a sense of, um, you know, I wanted it to have particular reference to uh, an Aboriginal understanding of the world so that, like, if a black reader comes and sits down with this story, they know where it is, they know what it's about, and they know the the particular kind of um, time event uh, that's going on here, mm-hmm. but that there's something interesting enough for a non-Aboriginal reader to at least get themselves through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of en- I ended up with was this sort of bricolage of... Um, of, of kind of like half-formed, deliberately quite half-formed metaphors. You know, it's thinking about somebody who is between space, between places where they've brought some language, where they've brought some understanding, some cultural knowledge. Maybe not all of it's exactly right. Maybe they remember some protocols, but not all protocols. Maybe, you know, other things, um, you know, other you know, like maybe this is a porous place. Um, other mm. things come through that you wouldn't typically understand being in that space. And just a character that tries to navigate all of those things to try to find the person that's going to tell them where they need to go or to find, you know, the people, the space, the, the place where they need to be. Mm-hmm. And throughout the story, um, well, the story begins with this this figure um, uh, making a mistake, making a transgression. And what follows is essentially just um, the result, you know, a a series of sort of cursed things like a library that falls down in on them, um, a house that just vehemently excludes them, um, uh, you know, real consequences that emerge from doing ceremony wrong, doing doing the protocols wrong. And it's not until this character is actually able to wander through this place, um, be outside of the house and wander through the land and listen to the people that are there to tell them where to go and how to navigate it, um, that they are able to actually find where they needed to be. And, you know, then it closes with some references about, like... Um, this is why they named this place Muyam, mm-hmm. um, because it's, it means place of water lilies. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, you know, uh, that's a totem. And that's, that's my personal totem as well. So it's deep, it is itself deeply personal, mm-hmm. but it's one of those ways of like, you know, never being able to actually look a problem directly in the eye. And so inventing a series of bizarre mixed metaphors to try to actually navigate anxieties as opposed to deal with them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so instead of seeing a therapist, I go and write stories. It's a really productive. I really recommend Thank it. Thank God. Um, yeah. We get to benefit from that, you know. I, I love that. Thank you. Um, so let's get some readings going. So we've heard you 
You know, about your stories. I want to hear your breathe them to life. Um, Mariana, would you read for us from the beginning? Okay, so this is one from. When time travel was banned, the ban operated more like a fine. Its, illeg- its illegality was little more than a bargain for the rich to make among themselves. Mm. The official stance of most countries was that there were certain states of emergency where its use might be deemed applicable. According to the United Nations, time travel had been used four times since since its inception at the turn of the century. The Universal Protocol deemed that the details of the four incidents classified, with the only concrete detail known being that time travel was approved in each instance by recommendation of the World Health Organization. Like most people, Ardelia Paves knew that this admission to only four incidents of time travel was bullshit. (laughs) Since the turn of the century, cases of what they now called juvenile dementia had skyrocketed. People young and old were wandering around with memories no one else had, asking after people who had never lived, asking directions to to towns no map had ever carried. Even the movies, Hanen said, were not the ones she remembered. Of all the missing memories and inexplicable adjustments braided through her life, it was this sentiment from her nan, tossed lazily into a sweaty Saturday afternoon two weeks ago in the kitchen, that echoed in Ardelia's head. All them old movies, Nen had tutted, never had any blackfellas in them. If they did, it wasn't pretty, or it was paint, she added darkly. Ardelia had only applied for her new job last week. Barely an hour after she had submitted the application, an automated phone call informed her that she had been accepted for the position with the program that she would start work on the following Monday. Even now, standing in the open mouth of Monday morning, swaying in the light rails movement, Ardelia's heart was racing. Had she really been accepted? Friends she had done a degree with had applied time and time again with no answer. Ardelia had assumed that if her white wealthy friends weren't getting responses from the program, why would she? I guess it's easier for you, because you're part Abbo, you know, a friend had guessed. What I mean, he backtracked, is like they have a quota and maybe you grab them at the right time. Ardelia shook the memory away, glancing up at the graphic map of the, of the light rail track. Two minutes from the studio, the time was 7.30am. She was an hour early, but as her screenwriting professor had said, on sets you're either early or late, be the former. The cool automated voice announced studio station and Ardelia looked around. In the corner of her eye, a South Asian man rose out of his seat, stepping forward so he stood beside her in front of the grey city blurring reality beyond the glass doors. They both lurched lightly as the carriage stopped and the doors hissed open. No one else got out beside the two of them. The man didn't even look at her as he crossed the gap between the carriage and the pavement into the world. Here, on the outer parts of what settlers called Sydney, the air tasted a little dustier, less metallic. Despite the early hour, Ardelia's backpack was already stuck to the small of her back. As per the emailed instructions, she had packed water, a torch, a first aid kit, a portable charger, a change of clothes, and a form of non-lethal self-defense. For the latter, she tied her brother's old softball bat to the bag straps. It wasn't heavy, but it was heavier than she'd expected she'd need for an assistant position. The suggestion of a breeze made the lukewarm morning air feel cooler than it was as she adjusted the straps and headed out of the station. 
The studio lot had been lifted and relocated to the outer city limits after the pandemics of the 20s. The world couldn't have cared less for the government's reputation of letting blackfellas die in prison, but loved its track record of handling contagions. As people mourned the sick and murdered, the government cashed in on Hollywood's desperation to keep their production schedules and made the movie studios on the city's outskirts a town in their own right. The faded, brightly coloured paint of the buildings, too old to look fresh, too new to be considered quality vintage, loomed over Ardelia as she made her way to the Round Information Centre. Ardelia counted the steps to the door to stifle her racing thoughts. I love that. Thank you, Mariana. Um, look, now I know from talking to you that you are a big spec fic nerd. Indeed. I want to know what traditions you're explicitly working with within your story and are there any that you're pushing back against? Um, traditions. Um, or genres or conventions or... I think what I've personally always loved about spec fic is it sort of lets you pick and choose and borrow and even if you don't necessarily have the language to articulate what exactly you're borrowing from, mm. Specfic is really great at allowing you to just sort of do what you want. If you want to do a bit of sci-fi, you want to do a bit of um, satire. It's sort of all those things. Mm. Um, but I think when I think about what I was specifically pushing back against, I really don't like the, I, the idea that a lot of um, really well-known and popular Specfic is um, white writers um, appropriating the oppression of like non-white people? Yes. Um, mm. And I and you wrote an honest thesis about this thing. I, I did. Yeah. I I I did write an honest thesis about um, how white feminism presents itself in sort of superhero and like media that's supposedly meant to empower women. And one of the texts that I looked at very closely was. Um, the Handmaid's Tale, specifically the TV series, but also obviously you can't talk about that without talking about the book. Mm. And Margaret Atwood, when she wrote that, what she was appropriating from, and she very cleverly even admits this, she says that nothing that happens in The Handmaid's Tale is new. All mm. of it has happened before. But what I think she leaves out is that it happened to women of colour. It yes. didn't happen to white women. And that's what The Handmaid's Tale is. It's a speculation on what if all this stuff, this really bad stuff that happened to women of colour, but what if, okay, what if, hear me out, <laughs> it happened to white women? Yeah. <laughs> and everyone went... <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess I want to... I want to push back on the idea that even in the worst imaginings of the future, you know, we we being people of colour, being Indigenous people, being Aboriginal people, we are still there mm. because we have lived through apocalypses before. Every apocalypse that you can imagine, we have lived through it in some way and are still living through it in many ways. Mm. Um, I know in your story you talk about um, Mad Max and how um, <laughs> Mad Max is like this this wasteland. It's, it's supposedly, supposedly Australia, um, but... Where are the Aboriginal people? Where right. are the Where are the people of colour? You know, I think genocided, genocided in the white imaginary. You know? Mm. Yeah, you know, even in these Sounds familiar. <laughs> even in these worlds that are about survival, 
like white people like to forget that we have already survived this thing before. And I fundamentally believe that all spec fic is kind of, it's about the end of the world and what's worth saving at the end of the world. Mm. And I want to push back against the idea that like we are not worthy of being present in that, in that end of the world and that we are part of what's worth saving. And even we are the only ones that really have the power to determine what is worth saving because we know this world better than than the people that just got here. So, so perfectly said. Thank you. Yes. Um, I, yeah, love, I agree with everything that you said now. Um, and we want, I want to come back, once we've done our readings, I want to come back and talk about Specfic a bit. And I know you've got a lot to say. Can we talk about more about, about Mad Max? Sorry? <laughs> Mad Max. What Mad Max? Well, they're making a new one right now. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I love talking about Mad Max. <laughs> Emil Minty, who played the feral kid. Let's just talk about Mad Max now. Um, you don't want to read Mad Max <laughs> So that was the only Aboriginal bit in no, Mad Max the second. But he wasn't actually Aboriginal. But he is. Is he? Yeah. Oh. He's well, see, I wrote a thing, I wrote a, thing a few years ago about the Fury Road, and there's only one Aboriginal character, and yeah. it's a ghost. And he accuses Mad Max. He says, you let us die. And to me, that's the most apt yeah, metaphor yeah. for any post-apocalyptic... Australian futurism because they literally genocided us from those futures. What about the third one? Yes. Right. <laughs> Little watched, but with yeah. Tina Turner did the soundtrack in that. And this is going to be followed by a screening. <laughs> <laughs> but they appropriated all the dreaming and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Which, yeah, it wouldn't get away with that now. No, no, no. Mm. no well, they could. Oh. No, but they, they could. They would want to. I suppose they could, yeah. <laughs> they might just get someone on there to sign it off, though. There's Avatars 2's coming out too, eh? Yeah. That's all based on <laughs> The representation we need. Anyway, I know you want to get out of reading, yeah. uh, Jack. <laughs> so, um, if you... We'll also accept a reenactment of the scene that you'd like from Fury Road. Yeah. You can act this out. It's yeah. such a brilliant... I love the voice of it. So be dramatic, please. <laughs> Clearly you want to express yourself. <laughs> all the fuel you can carry. Um... Okay, you want me to read this now? Yeah, just from the beginning, if All you right. could. I found this blanket during a cold week, posing as a windscreen on a wrecked car. Like a mangy hound guarding its master's grave, the rug only came with a tug that tore its paws, and they bled oil stains that I discovered later in the dim light under my bridge. Always a pro with nouns, my baby first was me, my rich and ham was always open. It was my dad that taught me, mannequin-y and mendacity stupid if you want to survive. He wrote it on my walls, the walls that are my journals under my bridge. Dad had tried to teach me much before he was found, sprawled wide and picked clean by old Uncle Sir and his crowd. Then old Uncle Sir married mother, just like shaky Claudius, a fellow dad once told me all about. My dad sure tried to teach me much before he was pecked apart by those trembling early birds. Robbed of crown, cloak and staff he was. Old Uncle Sir just happened to cross that crown not a long time afterwards, and his head is warm this winter, you can bet. And Mother's tracks are a little longer. She covers it with aluminium tin cans, she says, but whenever I pilfer their palace camp, I'm always kicking her fixes. Old Uncle Sir's picks too, I bet, discarded to infect the feet of intruders. No damn tin cans anywhere but a lessons, which she scratches into the walls under my bridge. I'll leave this blanket for Mother's comfort tonight to repay her for the food I'll take and the food I've taken over the course of autumn and these long cold weeks of winter. The walls of Mother's Lessons are a mosaic of muck-pigmented signs. She's entirely illiterate and writes in pictures that span from floor to fixtures, 
or depicting tales of our family history. My dad had never foresaw the need to teach mother reading or writing on an assumption he'd be around a while. And that's what he said, and I had no reason not to believe him. That death winner he said he had covered and cloaked, but he didn't figure on being poisoned by his brother and a nasty bottle of plonk. Mother's pictures told me this, sketches of old uncle sir murdering my dad. Trash icons for trash readers, and only for those that know of trash guile. I was banished from old Uncle Sir's immediate family after soiling his chambers with letters, the which he made me lick clean again with turpentine before shouting about how I was lucky to get off so light. I skipped away and have never missed that piss-pot palace. Only Mother kept me from leaving altogether. I need maps, but she insists on histories. This is the talk we speak, so take a seat and listen. When something goes missing from their palace camp, she knows I want her scratch on my walls and I'm a bridge for my journals. She comes stealthy, for we are forbidden to meet, save in the company of old Uncle Sir. And she makes her way muck bucket in hand to make a muck trash pictures. And then I beg for them damn maps to get out of this place, but each and every time she persists with the histories. Mm. That'll do. Mm -hmm. Jack, I want to know, um, so to my knowledge, this is the only bit of spec fic that you have out there in the world. You're mostly known for realist, realist fiction, mostly journalism. Um, but you, you deal with these themes that are very commonplace for, you know, Indigenous people, any working poor communities, you know, poverty, drugs, violence, um, dysfunctional families. Um, there's, also that, there's also a thread of you know, like literature or reading or language being um, denigrated in, you know, he gets, he gets uh, in trouble for soiling the place with letters, right? What is it about spec fic, particularly in this story, that, you know, you like, that you can use to defamiliarise those things which are all too familiar for us and, like, put them in a fresh light, you know? Jesus, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, look, I don't know. Short answer, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, I mean, me, you wrote, I know you wrote it a long time ago. Yeah. But you're obviously a spec fic fan. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, even the realist, naturalist stuff that um, I write, uh, I was talking with someone about this other night, I think they're definitely as much of speculative type fiction as anything else. It's just through a black lens. It's, it's reality through a black lens. Mm. And if we're talking about... Um, stepping away from that sort of normalised, normative... Um, Naturalistic. Know, yeah, realistic, mm. whatever it is. Everything that we do could be classified as, you know, speculative fiction. But, and we, you know, there's lots of problems around yeah. that terminology as well for yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but just as a genre pigeonhole, mm -hmm. it could be, you know, on that shelf. Um, yeah, I don't know about defamiliarising to get away from that stuff. I mean, I was living before when I said that uh, it was around that 92, 93, 94 that I gained a black political conscience mm. or consciousness. Um, I'd been living it before then. I was just immersed in it and that was the reality mm -hmm. um, that formed and shaped my world. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess just the act of doing it was defamiliarising or moving from, you know, that situatedness into a place where you could start to unpack it a little bit and mm. go, 
what is this? Like, I think, and you know, casting my mind back to however many, 25 years ago or whatever, um, I still hadn't resolved a lot of that, of what I was writing about in my head, and that was the act of doing it. Yeah. Um, this is a bit later on where I'm talking about uh, walking like a, or talking like a jail of walks in circles, mm -hmm. and that was kind of like me working through this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah it has I a think, very rhythmic, circular shape, and, and the, the yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like it sounds wanky now, but when like to get into university, I was living on a beach when I did the HSC, mm. failed dismally. Mm. Um, the only thing that I was any good at was the only thing I passed was Aboriginal studies. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to uni and you know, on one of those programs um, and did an interview and he said, well, what do you want to do? Like, I want to write, like, you know, like ceremonial dance, I want all those rhythms and shit like that, you know? Um, and it got me in, mm. you know, I was completely making it up on the mm. spot. <laughs> and, um, and this was the first thing that I'd written, so I was kind of like, I want to do that now. Yeah. And uh, the same guy, Nigel Crouth, his name was, he wrote on the end, um, I hope to read some more of your work before you die in a bar fight. <laughs> cool. Well, here you are, though. <laughs> he Look at you it, go. Yeah. And now it's published in this critically acclaimed, yeah, best-selling yeah. anthology. We're just waiting to reprint, and we've had two good reviews, so now we're critically acclaimed and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and best-selling. So. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. So... Um, Evelyn, would you read for us? Do you want to use my... Yeah, if that's all right. Couldn't fit anything else in the luggage. You're too so. busy. You've got a lot on. Well, so. you know, I have a lot of clothes. So. <laughs> you always look great. I try so, so, so hard. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to read from... Um, uh, kind of that, that shift point of when, um, as I was talking about before, when the, um, the protagonist has just realised that they have effed up. Um, mm, culturally. Culturally, ethically, yes, yeah. and the consequences of that have now arisen. I feel you first. Before you scintillate, I am coiled and sheathed. Fire out, dark blue, dark in and over this circle. You watching me, but all my myths are misting, and I cannot meet your eyes with my eyes that are your eyes, but I am reminded so sharp and so sudden of my spine crawling beneath my pinprickle skin. I wait for you or the dark to swallow me whole. I find voice in shudders. What thunder I have caused to be heard by you. You must know how I have loved you and have traced your shape into my skies, even in unknowing, even in other place. No one has told me where to go and no one but you is here to meet me. Do not show me back my fear. Give me smoke and words. I am ready. Give me place and purpose. I am so very here and eyes open. Not here now. Nothing here now but shame. I walk long ways around darkness. No creak for door, no light for window. The stars are muddled and moving. I ache for blue eyes. I ache for Jirajira. I ache for the base of the mountain where I have slept for so long in dream of you. Where you came to make us in the wrestling ground of the gods. Where we shall curl together when the big waves come back for their rivers. Did you take the panther with you from those hills? Long time to next place. <laughs> 
I breathe into the embers and the room is filled with glow. The table heaves with finger limes and bunion nuts, river red grubs, lily pilly wine and wattle damper and white flesh fish and powdered milk, bully beef with rice, devon and tomato sauce, kangaroo blood, water lilies and black snake, black cockatoo, crow and eagle hawk, all there, all steaming and scenting. Go on, eat it, eat it all. Why don't you just have a feed? Fill yourself, burst yourself, silence the starving. You might as well get what you can get, and that's all you're going to get from us, you greedy, stupid girl. You take this name in vain. You've gone away, so now you've got to go away. Keep on with empty mouth. Trace teeth with tongue. I dream they fall out, leaving my gums empty and raw. Maybe I moved, or maybe the museum did, but somewhere in this long time, long way, I find the panther and tell him my dream. Tell him I have mouth full of ghosts. He says, be grateful, but I say, I am sad. He asks me who taught me what is sadness. And I think all this is journey and metaphor, but his eyes are green, hurt, and distance. I promise the panther that if I ever learn to walk between these worlds I am cast from, I will find the ones that took his teeth. Where is Jirajira, panther? But the museum is gone now. So where now, my friend, my protector? I say this to silence and to alone. The library is heap and broken image. Shadows stride stony rubbish, open for breeze and star and bats were poring over the pomology pile. No missionary, no map maker, only the kind of quiet that you drink. All my far-gazed horizons watch me in this half-room. Hello, river in the air. Hello, emu nesting. How kind you are to visit. How precise. Thank you, Evelyn. Um, look, I know that you're a little surprised that I asked you mm. to put this story in this anthology. So I want to know what literary traditions you see your story situated in and what has been your relationship to the speculative, if any. Yeah, it really did surprise me that um, this piece became kind of, you know, or, or that you saw it being located in this because, to be honest, I hadn't in any capacity thought about it in any sort of space of genre or form. And I remember getting a little bit annoyed about some judges' notes because it, it went into the Nakata Brophy. It won the uh, it, went, it won the Nakata Brophy, yes. Um, <laughs> and there were some judges' notes. And it was the non-Aboriginal judge who made a comment about this, oh, mind yeah. you, who called it magic realism. And I, I have a, I've, got a, I've got a sus relationship with that terminology. I think a lot of mob do. Um, it's not to say that it can't be useful, and I think, like, when we look at a writer like Alexis Wright, mm. who just, like, she leans into whatever she wants to lean into because she knows what she's doing with it better than anybody else does, and she actively makes use of these tropes and conventions of the mag of magic realism mm. and of a multitude of other journals. Uh, it's not journals, genres. Genre. Um, uh, and for me, it was more so just thinking thinking about style and form than it was thinking about where it would be located in, in genre. Mm. And I loved reading the introduction of the anthology and how you placed all of the different stories in connection with each other. And it was just a really lovely thing to see it as having its own kind of home in that, in that context and surrounded by other works that, um, you know, I think 
outside of this kind of placement Mm -hmm. really read, um, you know, like a mob don't do speculative fiction the way that non-Aboriginal people do. There's there's culture, there's politics, there's just so much else accumulated and acting Mm. upon it. So um, I never consciously thought about it, but the relationship that I have now with this story... um, is actually one that's um, that's really developed into how I, you know, I think about um, this piece of, of ostensibly prose. To be honest, it's a long poem. That's, oh, yeah. That's, that's how I clearly, how I write apparently. Um, and, um, you know, it, it allowed me to, to really play with stylistic experimentation as a way of, um, as its own protocol, Mm. as its own way of speaking to things that I want mob to understand, but withholding things from a non-Aboriginal reader uh, or from a non-culturally engaged or conscious reader. Mm. Um, Because I think we have a right to do that. We have a right to be able to talk about and write about and speak to our own cultures and contexts, but we have to be so careful about how that's distributed and framed and taken outside of our hands. So I'm, I wouldn't, the thing that I'd say is I would have probably really questioned that story being placed in a speculative fiction if it wasn't one by mob for mob, mm-hmm. but by virtue of it being in this space and in conversation with other pieces, I am really just so happy that it has been, that it's had the chance to be read as, like, yeah, like a weird little ghost story mm. kind of thing. Mm. Like, I love it. It's been great. I love it too. Thank you. I'm actually going to read a little bit, um, something that speaks to all of your answers about, you know, your relationship to Specfic. Because I wanted to, I also have a pretty fraught relationship to Specfic. Like, I love it as a genre. I love it as a term. I love it as an organising principle. But as we've all acknowledged, there are problems with it because to us, often it's just reality. So I'm just going to read a little bit from my intro. Uh, Specfic is a big and porous basket that holds all the slippery types of stories together, including science fiction, climate fiction, alternate history, futurism, post-apocalyptic fiction, utopian and dystopian fiction, fantasy, horror, gothic fiction, surrealism, magic realism, and slipstream fiction, and other stuff, of course. Specfic, as a Western genre, employs devices that our cultural stories have dealt in for millennia. The difference is, to us, these stories aren't always passed out into fictional fantasy, as they are often just ways we experience life. For example, time travel isn't such a big deal when you belong to a culture that experiences or thinks about all time simultaneously, not in a progressive straight line like Western cultures do. And talk to any Aboriginal kids from any community anywhere on this continent about gussies or ghosts, and you'll find a captive audience of experts and maybe a highly skilled storyteller if you're lucky. There are so many common spec fic themes that are just stone-cold reality for us right now. Right now, right across this continent, we are post-apocalyptic and not yet post-colonial. So all those violent histories of invasion and colonisation must be read as apocalyptic by any standard. Related, Mad Max is probably the best-known Australian cli-fi story, but for our people, who have seen unfathomable ecocide enacted hand-in-glove with our own attempted genocide, all stories that take place in our unceded lands post-1788 are climate fictions or climate stories. 
Finally, and perhaps more universally, some people say that spec fic deals in the not real. But what of the absolute fantasy of continuous consumption on a finite planet? I'm wondering, do we want to keep talking or do we want to take questions? Because we don't have a lot of time. Do you, does anyone want to speak to some of that? I know that maybe, Mariana, you might have had a bit more to say about the genre and how things are... I don't think I have much more to say than what I said before. I, I yep. just think there needs to be more... Um, and your, your, this anthology is doing that and other anthologies that have come out this year as well, um, like Unlimited Futures, which I'm also in. Yeah, same. <laughs> same. Uh, by Ellen Van Nieven, who's also a contributor to this. And it's probably available in the bookshop. Yes, probably. Um, but, yeah, I mean... I feel like okay. I'm on the Truman Show, which is another speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello. But, um, but, no, I do feel like we just need more um, of our own voices in these, in these things because... Yeah. You know, you said before, the only Indigenous voices in something like Mad Max were ghosts. Yeah. They were not, um, if they were present at all. Yes. Um, so I just think we need more voices where we're present, more voices where we are um, allowed to explore our cultural traditions mm -hmm. within, this, um, within this genre and outside of it and making it our own. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it is our own, though. These are, these yeah. are literary devices that our cultural stories have dealt with for millennia. It's yeah, not yeah. new to us. It's just called speculative. Yeah. Well, I had that throwaway line in the piece that I shamelessly did to promote this book, um, which, you know, we invented it. Yes. Aboriginal people invented speculative fiction, yeah, if yeah. you want to cast All it like that. All of our stories have magic and ghosts and devils and yeah, time, time slips. Time yeah, slips, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's... And, I mean, Evelyn's story deals with that very explicitly too. Yeah, it doesn't... I don't see it as being even a kind of... Um, like, the magic aspects are what... A, a reference is purely just to what is sort of Western and external, mm. I think, in that. But the whole idea of particularly, like, haunting and ghostliness and that trope in Mad Max, that goes way back. That is, like... Per, that permeates the entire history of Australian literature and, like, the pastoral tradition and, and bush poetry, mm -hmm. that Aboriginality is this dead, decayed or dying dying thing and that, that can be represented with the skeletons scattered on the path or with the grave or you know um with this with various sorts of gestures of spectral presence mm -hmm. and it's a it's a um you know it's it's deeply persuasive uh it, and, and it's a well it's a deeply persuasive sort of symbolic logic that allows them to kind of place us in our own mythic void of the dream time so mm -hmm. it's their own attempt to give us agency um, but it's it's really not actually in any way like agency or representation. They and really want to like remove us. Yeah, they uh, they love doing that. That's that's <laughs> a that's a big thing for them. Um, uh, and I'm really interested in not simply just what speculative fiction is doing because I think the power of fiction in this space is really cool and prose and long form, but also thinking about the work of like Natalie Harkin mm. and other really incredible um, you know like like poets and artists thinking about how we might haunt them back. Yes. Um, and that's something that I find like a really cool area, whether that be creatively or academically or actually a mix of both. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see in the future more conversations, yes, about and staging and placement of um, uh, speculative fiction, but also all of those other 
textual forms that mm -hmm. have these this same pushback, this same you know act of haunting the colony back, haunting the archive back, haunting the canon back, and haunting the future back, and haunting mm. the future back. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's everybody always loves to quote this thing from Alexis of like um, all times are possible. Uh, you know, you know um, uh, every story has always been and it'll be again. That that the thing that they always kind of miss to emphasise in that is like that's the bad stuff as well as the good stuff, and yes. the bad stuff is a constant overlaying and overlap. That time exists with us constantly um, and it's our responsibility to as much as possible name it for what it is and to remember it for what it was and what it will continue to be so yeah they always only yeah. get half the quote well, I find there's a fascination with the gory graphic bloody stuff now and I'm working uh, covering the Europe Truth Commission mm -hmm. down in, uh, in Victoria and um, travelling around Asking both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, you know, what do you think the Truth Commission should be? What should it hear? And there's like an infatuation with massacres. Yes. Everyone wants, you know, got to talk massacres. Got to talk. Yeah, we do. What about contemporary forms of the same sort of exploitation and mm. attempts at various erasure? So yeah, I can absolutely I think, see what I you're think saying. with that, there's this, uh, there's a need for that reckoning before we can start to think. And I think. I think when we look at ghost stories or hauntings or the gothic, any kind of you, you can read it as any ghost in any story, especially um, you know settler stories of Aboriginal ghosts. It's their own guilty conscience mm. haunting them in the form of the Aboriginal spectral presence and fear of the land itself. Absolutely, fear of yeah. country. Absolute fear of the land. That whole um, effort to replant, you tame, know, well, the gentrify. landscape. Yeah, the you know bringing. Importing the plants that were familiar over there, even the grasses that you see, all that sort of stuff, and just redefining landscapes mm. was based on this fear of being unable to attain whatever it was. So mm. I just find that fascinating. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If ever there's a living speculative fiction, it's when mm. you walk outside and go, that never used to look like that. Yeah, that's right. And it's this deep, for us, it's this deep sense of the uncanny that is for them uh, its own kind of just pot planting of of Euro-Western versions of home. Like, yeah, the whole colony is a ghost story, really. Yes, and, and a it, horror story. And then it's funny because they turn around and go, why are things on fire all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Who could have predicted this? <laughs> the world's changing. Oh, my God, maybe the ancestors are angry with us. Mm. <laughs> um, any final things you're burning to say? Tell us about Guru Futurism and why you're oh. in your own research because um, Michaela didn't just edit this anthology, uh, you were also you know, a scholar of this and you've also done some really um, cutting edge work in this space and Thank I want to hear about Guru Futurism. Well, I, so I have a story in here as well. Um, it's the first story I ever wrote. Uh, my teacher is in the, who's class I wrote it in, Fiona McFarlane. I know she's in the audience somewhere. Um, I'm very fond of this story. Um, it, it started as a, a story where I wanted to think about what my community might look like in a future where they had reasserted sovereignty and had total, um, you know, self-determination over lands and waters and community. And it was really nice because I was kind of pole vaulting over this history that you have to, 
history, future history that you'll have to go through to get there. I didn't want to grapple with decolonisation and how that happens. I wanted to imagine a life after it. And so it's set in my community in the Tweed. Um, and the beautiful thing is because it's not dealing with white supremacy, it's not battling against that, it's just like a really cute queer love story between two young people. And I love that. And I, I wish we could have more stories like that. And that's why I'm trying to write stories that are set in the future in my community because I want young people in my community to go, okay, that that okay, for starters, we're present, but also we're thriving, we're loving, there's no homophobia, everything's great. Um, and it's not all like sickly sweet utopia. There's some pretty uh, there's some pretty wild stuff that happens, but it's you know, we're humans, of course we're gonna have wild things, you know. There is no utopia. Okay, well, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you, Evelyn, Mariana, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.